Hey, this is Robbie Kilman-Baxter, author of The Forever Transaction, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Robbie Kelman-Baxter. Robbie leads the strategy consulting firm Peninsula Strategies, focused on helping companies leverage subscription pricing, digital community, and freemium to build deeper relationships with customers. Her clients include startups and mid-sized venture-backed companies, as well as industry leaders, such as Netflix, Oracle, Electronic Arts, and eBay. Robbie appeared on My Quest for the Best on episode 190 to explain the ideas from her groundbreaking book, The Membership Economy. Find your super users, master the forever transaction, and build recurring revenue. Today, she's here to break down and share ideas from her new book, The Forever Transaction, how to build a subscription model so compelling your customers will never want to leave. She lives in Menlo Park, where Google was born, the epicenter of Silicon Valley. Welcome, Robbie. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Robbie, we've talked about the membership economy and the changes and the promise that that holds. I'd love it if you would give a quick recap and talk about what's the essence of a forever transaction inside the context of a membership business model. Yeah, the forever transaction is that moment when the customer takes off their consumer hat puts on a member hat and stops looking for alternatives. It's that moment where they say, this organization is going to help me achieve a particular goal for me or solve a particular problem for me forever. And I don't need to keep shopping. That is a powerful statement because I can really identify points where I said the same thing. It's like with Apple. (laughs) I I buy iPhones and it's going to be which MacBook I purchase. I'm not looking at other brands or other operating systems. This is the operating system that has everything I need. This is the ecosystem where I'm happy. And it really does resonate to your definition of stop looking for alternatives. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you bring up Apple because I feel the same way. We live in an Apple house, but, you know, Apple started to face a problem that even though we have a forever transaction with them as our hardware solution, our hardware ecosystem solution. Once we buy the hardware, there's not much else that we needed from them. And for that reason, they've made a very deliberate and very much publicized move towards services. Because with a service, you can charge subscription fees and you can really leverage the power of that forever transaction that they already had. So let's look at that in a little bit more detail. Apple offers Apple stores that aren't there just to sell hardware, but also offer services like Genius Bar services and repair services. So it's a a model where they are able to build local faces into the relationship people have with the company and with the brand. What else are they doing in terms of building the key components to it, not just to have subscription for using, say, iCloud space or being able to purchase things from the iTunes store, But what are they doing to bring it into the level of a real membership where you feel that sense of identity for people who haven't had that longstanding relationship? Well, I actually think that they're doing it mostly, well, two ways of looking at it. One of them is 
primarily in the early days, especially the services that they provide are an extension of the existing relationships they have with their very loyal and engaged customers. You mentioned kind of their support services. You mentioned iTunes and the App Store. More recently, of course, they've launched uh, Apple Plus, their streaming services with, you know, high-end content. All of that, you know, initially is for people who are already very loyal hardware customers. But I wonder if at some point they expect and hope that it kind of flips the other way. In other words, that the services, particularly their streaming content, actually is an initial point of contact for new members and a way for them to expand the way that they engage with the larger Apple organization. Yeah, I could definitely see that as being a strategy play because of the way that they're bringing the content on and looking to engage people through relationships they might already have with certain actors or personalities who are now appearing on their regular shows. So I, I see evidence of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. If you're a Jennifer Aniston fan, man, you know, you need Apple Plus. <laughs> Jennifer Aniston, every time you turn on, it's either a great draw or a great warning. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's talk about this in terms of small and mid-sized businesses that have existing customer relationships. They've looked at wanting to create a membership type of relationship and a membership offering so that they could have something like Apple has, you know, the streaming service. Netflix has a subscription service where you're not paying per movie that you watch, but you're paying a membership fee and you could watch as much as you have time for. And we spoke on an earlier episode, we talked about this with a recruiting firm down in Texas. How is it that a lot of companies that have tried to do this have run into blocks? And you've detailed this in your new book, The Forever Transaction. Six of the obstacles that are very common business people who are looking to create this type of forever transaction might run into. It's not saying that everyone has to solve these as problems. They're not saying that there's a sequence to which you have to uh, hierarchically move your way through, but these are six things that have afflicted others. And one of them might be just disappointing results with the initial offer, right? Yeah, absolutely. Disappoint, you know, a lot of times existing organizations of all sizes are interested in getting the benefits of subscription pricing, deepening the relationship with their customers by moving to more of a membership mindset. And so they do a small experiment. They might offer, let's say if you're a restaurant, you might offer free coffee for members. Or if you're a manicure salon, you might say, instead of coming in and paying 30 bucks for a manicure, you pay $50 a month and you get all of your touch-ups included. And in most cases, as in, in most things with life, your first shot isn't the best one. You know, as, as writers, we talk about the shitty first draft. And I think it's the same is true when companies launch new businesses, new experiments, new ways of doing things. And what, what I see happening too often is it doesn't do as well as they had hoped. And so they stop. They say, and they draw the wrong conclusion. Instead of saying this experiment didn't have the results that we'd hoped for, they say subscriptions don't work in our industry. I mean, what a huge, I don't know if you ever read uh, the Phantom Toll Booth when you were a kid, but you know that there's this, there's this part in the book where the, this little boy's going on a journey in an imaginary world because he doesn't like to read and he says he's bored. And he says something, he says something, and all of a sudden he finds himself sitting on an island and he asks someone on the island, where am I? And they said, you're on the island of conclusions. <laughs> How did you get there? You jumped. 
And I think too many business owners jump to gigantic conclusions based on very small experiments. That's true. I always listen for three types of errors that people are making when they're trying to make an argument and they're looking to force an idea. And I'll see that they either generalize, taking results in one area and looking to apply it in a variety of others that really doesn't fit very well. They may distort results to give them a bias of more favorable or more negative, depending on what they're looking to do. And they may delete information that contradicts what their thesis is. So those are three things that I'm always looking for that fits in with this bad evaluation of disappointing results rather than looking at like an experiment. Don't a lot of companies take a swing at trying to create kind of membership offering and they do so without realizing what the organizational and skills that are needed are. And they realize they don't realize that there are gaps that they have with their capabilities until they start to bring on some different members in the offering. Yeah, absolutely. Five years ago, when I wrote The Membership Economy and I tried to explain to entrepreneurs and and business owners the power of of subscription pricing and a membership mindset, you know, a lot of them said, I don't know that that's for me. Flash forward five years later, pretty much every entrepreneur, every small business owner, every big company executive, every nonprofit executive, I mean, you name it, everybody has experimented with subscription pricing, membership models some new way of building an ongoing relationship with their customers. And I think that's great, but you know, it's about more than just slapping a subscription price onto your existing offering and then continuing to operate in the same way you always have. As you pointed out, Bill, uh, there's a lot of other implications to moving to this kind of long-term focused model. Do you have an example of a company you've studied or worked with that been able to look at that and then make a systematic run at building this offering by saying, wow, we understand where our gaps are. Here's where we need to place a focus. Here are the positions we need to hire for. And in three months, we're going to be able to make a much stronger statement about how well our experiments are going. Oh, there's so many companies who have done this. I'm trying to think of a good example. I mean, one of them is Electronic Arts. They're a video game company. They make you know lots and lots. They, they have taken many, many, many hours away from my bonding with my son because he's he's always playing you know FIFA or one of the other one of the other games I think that one's his favorite uh, he's a soccer fan but their his, history where they come from their roots are in creating hit games which requires a very particular organizational structure where you focus on a particular title or franchise very much like movies and you create a new title and you charge $60 for it and all your fans buy it And then they wait for 18 months for the next one to come out, you know, FIFA 2020, FIFA 2018, whatever. When you move to a subscription model, you know, there's a lot of questions that come up. Do you you subscribe to the one franchise or do you subscribe to the whole catalog of games? And if you subscribe to the whole catalog of games, which games do, do people who play FIFA like to play shooter games or like to play, you know, strategy games? And so there's a lot of new questions that have come up. And at EA, at least... What they did is they have a dedicated team that's been focused on thinking through subscription and experimenting. And they've run a series of increasingly big experiments around creating a both a, a subscription priced offering and also a supporting network or community for people to connect with one another and enjoy playing games together 
whether or not they actually subscribe to the paid product. So I think that's a good example of an organization that has been historically transactional, but is really moving to much more of a player-first, membership-oriented model. I agree. I think that's a really strong example. And it's very similar to what Adobe did with taking their creative suite and making it available to creative artists, students, business owners at different pay levels, but going to a membership model rather than a one-time purchase that then received upgrades. It's a big financial change from a very lumpy <laughs> income statement <laughs> to one that's more smoothed out. And I think that a lot of companies are hesitant, maybe even to do the experiments because of the fear of cannibalization. Yeah, cannibalization is definitely one of the biggest risks in facing successful companies, which totally makes sense, right? If you are already doing good business in a more transactional or lumpy way, and then you look at the subscription and you know the question is always, well, what if our best customers move to the subscription which is an all, if it's, an, let's say it's an all you can eat kind of model. And instead of buying, you know, three times a year from us, they subscribe to get all of our value and they actually spend less than they used to. And what if they're the only people that like the subscription model and it doesn't attract new people? So when I'm working with organizations that have those fears, what I try to do is first get them to write down or to get really explicit about what do you think is going to happen? What, like, you know, so for example, they say, okay, if the subscription is, let's say the subscription is $100 a year, and let's say that the product, you know, when you're selling transactionally, let's say that the product, let, I don't know, let's use the EA, you know, 60 bucks a year. So you're worried the only people who will subscribe to the $100 a year all-you-can-eat model are people who are currently buying two games a year for $120, right? So effectively, they're moving from being $120 a year to $100 a year. So you want to just figure out how many people is that? And let's say it's the most extreme case. They're the only customers, the only subscribers. What would the loss be? What's the risk on this experiment? And what do we think is a more realistic expectation? So maybe 75% of the people who become subscribers come from this group and cannibalize themselves. And, you know, that's a really good way to take some of the, the faceless, shapeless, nameless fear out of it and get really specific about what you're really risking and then it's also a good way to start to put some guardrails on your offer, in, either in terms of how many people you offer it to or for how long, or even how good the initial pricing is. It's much easier to lower the price of your subscription than it is to increase the price of your subscription. So if you're nervous, you might start high, and that's going to really mitigate your risk. That's a good point. I think that just the experimentation mindset is so critical to being successful with moving to new business models. And I know that there are a lot of small businesses and mid-sized businesses that are experimenting with this and they're making offerings that are they're starting with what the high-end offer is so that they can provide all of the services and really delight that initial group. And there's nothing that says that once you move to a subscription model, everyone has to do it or that you can't change what the pricing model is as other people join. You can have charter members who maybe pay one fee just because they're going to give you so much feedback and be evangelists for this. And then other people might pay an annual fee, and that might be less expensive than people who are invited to pay a monthly fee. Do you have an example of someone, a company that you've worked with or known about that has that kind of gradation in the ways that they've offered memberships as a way of taking very 
graduated steps into the pool. Yeah. Well, let's continue on. You know, with EA, they didn't launch by saying we're going to make all games available to all people on all devices for a fixed price. They started with specific channels, so or you know, different different products. So you know, the games are available you know, on, on a variety of consoles, like, you know, Sony PlayStation or Microsoft's Xbox, but you can also play them on your PC. So when they started experimenting, one of the first experiments was just people who play on the PC. And they also looked at new games versus what we call the catalog of games, the old games, right? A six month old game that's no longer a hot new title because it's a very hit driven business. So what about a catalog of old games, older games, on a less popular platform, PC, as a starting point. And then what you want to do is think about what are the things that we can learn from this particular experiment. So you might learn how do we communicate this value to our existing best members, our, you know, the people that are buying two, three, four games a year or more. And then how do we communicate this to somebody new and who really likes it? And how long do they stay? And how much do they play? You get all of those questions answered, which then in turn mitigates your risk as you expand into more popular console gaming, current games, where the risk might be might be greater. And then I think you also asked about different tiers of pricing or changing your pricing once you've initially launched. And, you know, a lot of organizations have pricing for, you know, either like you said, beta members or, you know, early members giving them a better deal, which also encourages people to join early or having beta pricing for the first year and giving a warning that we're going to raise pricing after the first year or having special pricing for students or young people or solopreneurs as a way of kind of grading the pricing to make it available to everyone. And it really is about experimenting and finding out what your most desirable, most loyal, most ardent fans want and where they see the value point, isn't it? It's being able to enter into that conversation and you're going to get conflicting data from maybe what you originally thought, but then you're getting to the truth. You're finding out what people are really willing to pay for. Yeah, absolutely. It's so helpful to find out what people are willing to pay for before you go too broadly. What about the fear of cutting out the middleman? I know that there are a lot of companies that rely on either a distribution partner or installation partners in order to fulfill their businesses. How does that change the model of how they're paid and maybe a company that's done that? An example, I don't know if EA can be employed as our test case here or or to explain it, (laughs) but give that a shot. Tell me how the middleman piece works. Yeah. So it's actually, it's one of those cases where, first of all, you know, I work with companies in a lot of different industries. You know, we've been talking about, you know, entertainment, but I also work with news and software and hardware and uh, retail, physical products, consumer products, pretty broad range. And a lot of those industries have middlemen. So for example, if you are in the heavy equipment business, threshers and crushers and cranes, Caterpillar, Volvo, Rolls-Royce, those kinds of companies, they usually sell through a dealer. And the dealer is the one often that does the maintenance. Now, when they have services wrapped around the, the equipment, that gives a point of connection between the corporation and the end user that bypasses that middleman. So there's a great risk that 
the middleman will get angry and maybe the model doesn't really work. And then the dealers are angry and maybe they go to a different, you know, they start representing other manufacturers. That's very scary. Same issue is if you're a consumer products company, let's say you sell makeup and instead of going through retailers like whatever, Nordstrom, Sephora, Sally's Beauty Supply, what if you start going direct to your consumers and bypassing the retailer? You can imagine that that retail channel is going to be angry and they might stop carrying your products before you're ready to depend on your direct-to-consumer relationship. And then another example is in the world of, of content. People talk about Netflix all the time and everybody's trying to be like Netflix. But if you're, let's say, HBO or A&E or ESPN, and your whole business model has been about going through the, the cable providers and satellite providers, and suddenly you're investing in you know, what they call OTT over the top, where you're going direct to your consumer through a direct subscription that does not require a cable subscription, you can imagine how the cable companies feel about that. So there is this very real fear inside successful organizations that if they start placing bets that cut out the middleman, that the middleman might respond in a way that doesn't give them the runway to build that new model. That's true. It's a tricky power dynamic. And I think we've seen examples of that with different networks or even sports franchises restricting access because they wanted to show that they were unhappy with, say, Comcast. I, I think there were examples where they would not allow their sports events to be shown there because they weren't happy with how the relationship was. And there's a, a power dynamic of kind of being holding some of the content hostage. And I think it's really only a, a temporary way in order to navigate those difficulties. Because if that's what the consumer wants, that's eventually where the business is going to go. Is that your perspective as well? Yeah. I mean, it can go both ways. So the example you gave where the content creator is holding back the content and not making it available through the distributors, that's one approach. And that historically has been the way that the distributors own the customer, right? Even in the example we started with today with Apple, a lot of app developers are frustrated because if they want to reach people like you and me who use Apple products, they have to sell through the app store, Apple's app store. And Apple takes a big cut and has, and really has the greater level of control over that relationship and has the data for that relationship. They handle the bill payment, they know how it's being used and so on. So that relationship can go both ways. It's not always obvious who holds the power between the distributor and what's being distributed. That's true. And it's a tricky dynamic and one that needs to be looked at on a case-to-case -case basis for sure. Robbie, if someone was taking away a key idea of the importance of the forever transaction and the idea of building this type of subscription offering into their business, in 2020, what would you be encouraging them to think about and do? The number one thing that you can do, no matter what size your business is or how long you've been running it, is to take a step back and say, what is the forever promise I want to make to the people I serve? Who are those people and define them as, as best as you can? And how do I deliver fully on that promise? So taking those very simple steps will often put you in a very different frame of mind than if you focus too much on your products. It takes you, if you're a newspaper, that takes you from saying, 
we're a newspaper company. We have relationships with printers. We have relationships with newspaper delivery people to saying we help people be more informed and make better decisions about the important things in their lives. And if that's the business you're in, you aren't limited anymore by, you know, what can fit on a broadsheet delivered five days a week. You can do digital content, you can do events, you can do educational courses. There's a lot of different ways. You can do advisory services, concierge services. There's a whole range of ways that you can deliver on that promise of helping you understand your environment and make better decisions. Same thing's true if you're a manicure salon, right? You know, what if you're not in the business of doing manicures, but you're actually in the business of making people's hands look right? It would really change how you structured and priced your offering. So I think the biggest thing that I hope people take away is putting that member's mission at the center of what you're doing and then building the products and processes around that ongoing need. Well, Robbie Baxter, you have been so helpful to sharing ideas that help illuminate what the forever transaction is about. I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best today and sharing these ideas about how to think about this and how to build out that member's mission where you're asking, what is the forever promise we want to make? Who are the people we want to make it to? And how do you deliver on that promise? Because that's something that everyone listening can and should do because you need the knowledge that your competition is doing that. There are people out there who are looking to build that relationship with your customers. And if you're not going to do it, someone else will. So Robbie Baxter, I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. And before we say goodbye, tell me, where can we find out more about you and the work that you're doing online? Well, Bill, I'm not hard to find. <laughs> the easiest place to find me is RobbieKelmanBaxter.com. Uh, you can also find me uh, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, Robbie Bax, on YouTube, and of course, your favorite bookstores, libraries, or digital e-commerce book purveyors. Well, we're going to link to your website, your company website, all the ways that they can buy the book and all your social media channels so that when people are listening to this episode, we make it so easy to connect with you and find out more about the forever transaction as well as the membership economy. Robbie Baxter, thanks again so much. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.